You're listening to the Talk Editions Podcast, Episode 38, with Brian Jacobs. Talk will perform the world premiere of Brian's Organic Synthesis, Volume 2, commissioned by Talk, a week from when this podcast comes out, on Thursday, December 7th, at Me Too 580 in Brooklyn. So if you're in the area, we hope to see you there. Composer, performer, and sound artist Brian Jacobs' work focuses on interactions between live performers, hand-built electromechanical instruments, and computers. His pieces are often theatrical in nature, pitting blabbermouthed fanciful show-offs against timid reluctance. His music has been performed by the Cleveland Chamber Symphony, Wet Ink, International Contemporary Ensemble, Talia Ensemble, and Ensemble Pomplamoose at many music festivals in Europe and the U.S. He is a 2017 Guggenheim Fellow and a member of the Performer-Composer Collective, Ensemble Pomplamoose. Here's our conversation between me, Charlotte, vocalist of Talk, Laura, flutist in Talk, and Brian. Maybe, maybe we can start now. Okay. Hey, Brian, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's so good to see both of you. I'm oh, so excited. So good to see you. Let's start this with some energy. I can It's been a long time since I've seen both of you. And now I'm so excited to be doing that again right now, virtually. So you wrote us a really awesome piece. You're still editing it, um, but it's pretty much done called Organic Synthesis Volume 2. Yeah, Volume 2. So what was Volume 1? That might be Please, yes. one of the yeah, things. Yeah, take us down the That's a question mark. Yeah, Volume 1 was a piece I wrote for uh, Ensemble Pomplamoose. And it was important for me to, yeah, I thought Volume 2 would be perfect for um, other friends who are, I think, working in a similar collaborative spirit. And the whole organic synthesis idea is uh, just a way of trying to describe the instrument building that's a part of this project and was a part of that project. Um, in both pieces, I've used mechanical instruments that make their sounds acoustically, um, but end up making a different kind of sound that's very computer controlled, so it ends up sounding synthetic. But both pieces are based on instruments that are built as human computer hybrid instruments. And so we can talk about that a little bit, why that's important for me yeah. aesthetically. But that's can basically you... the title, and that's basically why it's why it's volume two. Can you describe the the instruments in a little more detail, this this sort of mechanical. Yeah, the instruments this time for volume two are different. The instruments for volume one were uh, slide whistle, mechanically controlled slide whistles, where humans are um, providing the air supply and are um, providing the the rhythmic input into that synthesizer and the computer is doing more of the pitch control and the gestural, the, the pitch gestures in the piece. So I have some instruments that uh, work in very different ways where rhythm is controlled by computers and humans control pitches or the other way around. Um, for the instrument that I wanted to focus on for the piece that I wrote for you guys, the idea is it's a hybrid instrument between human vocalization and computer generated impulses. So the 
instrument ends up being um, your mouths. But so I have instruments with uh, hybrid human computer wind instruments, and I have hybrid human computer string instruments. But well, one unique thing about your ensemble is a, a vocalist uh, adds a new dimension of intrigue and a different writing style. And I wanted to involve the the human voice uh, more into that connection and the mouth. So the instrument that you'll be performing on is, I've been calling it a chirp toy, but it sends impulses of sound into everybody's mouth, into the ensemble. And the job of the performers is to filter that sound. That's so cool. And I'm so excited. And I feel like I kind of understand what a chirp toy is from our workshops, <laughs> but I am wondering if you can describe like what it is and how it's set up, unless it's like totally proprietary for those who might have a little more info. <laughs> no, it's, uh, it follows the same model of, uh, people might be familiar with uh, a talk box, which is an instrument, I guess, that was uh, more popular in the 70s, maybe the 60s, I think. Um, but that instrument was used often in connection with guitar, where you actually had a little pedal or keyboardists would use it sometimes. And there was a tube attached to it, and there was a speaker at the end of the tube that would shoot sound down the tube and the tube was meant to go into a person's mouth and you filter the sound uh, with your mouth. Um, so it's that same concept. This works slightly differently. Well, one, all the sound that goes into it is computer controlled impulses. And, and two, the, the only sounds that can go into it are square wave little clicks. So it's super minimal in one way. And it's I guess, the source material. And the idea there is it has a relationship with uh, some insect sonification. It also has a relationship with the human voice, vocal cord vibration, and the, the rest of the vocal apparatus being things that are um, filtering vocal cord vibrations, which are uh, simpler impulses, not square waves, but simpler impulses. Yeah, I would describe it like, like you said, there's like, little clicks that get sent into our mouths and then the way we shape our mouths changes how high or low the click is the way if you do a tongue click like how you can change the sound of the click based on the shape of your mouth it's That's very great. cool the clicks are like you know they don't sound like human clicks they sound yeah they sound like insect clicks yeah is there like a like a human insect hybrid aspect of this if we're talking about like computer human hybridity what is the like arthro angle? It's a that little sounds like a real word that I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> it's right. like creepy bugs. It's like little centipedes and shit like that. Maybe it's also baby shrimps. I don't really know. Exoskeleton, exoskeleton invertebrates with cuticles made of chitin. Did you set out to make arthro sounds or did you make the thing and then realize it sounded like a tiny thing with a shell? Oh, um, yeah, I have no idea why this how I started this one or why but it's it's whenever I make a new instrument I have a I probably have an idea of what I want to make originally but that almost always gets thrown out the window right away because there's something more interesting along the way it suggests things always that I can't imagine and that's the process of like exploring any new instrument or even any old instrument and trying to come up with a, a composition for it for me is always like well let's try to look at this thing as openly as possible and be open to its to what it suggests and what it's trying to do and 
you know, let yourself go in that direction. Let yourself be guided by that, any by anything in life, really. Try to analyze it and stay open and accepting of what the opportunities are in life and in music, you know? And yeah, it became pretty clear that these click things were, had a, there was an opportunity there to, first of all, they kind of sounded like insects and I could see how the way that they generated sounds had something to do with the way that insects generate sounds. I mean, they do that in different capacity, in different ways, uh, but there is a connection there. And then using it in an ensemble setting was exciting to me because I was thinking about how instrumentalists play together, but then also thinking how insects sonify together in in large groups, katydids and cicadas and crickets, especially how they have ideas about how their community members are performing and how they play off of that, how they go into phase and out of phase and how the sound that we experience from them all is probably very, very different from how they experience it. But the sound we experience from them is this is a chorus idea. And there's something about that communal insect sonification that is a I guess it's a has something to do in some level with the human instrumentalist and performance practice specifically with ensembles that play together a lot and that are very intimately um, tied together. So this kind of piece I wouldn't write for a lot of groups. It has to do with your relationship with each other and with me and with musical things related to your specific group, but our broader musical group that we're all part of. Yeah, totally. That's beautiful. That's so beautiful and so fascinating. Can you tell us a little bit more about you know, if you've kind of gone down any rabbit holes with communal insect sonification and, you know, are, are there studies of like what it does sound like to them or or the point of that expression that they're doing? Yeah. What, I, I what mean, are they doing out there? I'll say something about it, but I'm totally unqualified and this is very armchairy and, you know, reading a certain part into the research and then abandoning it because artistic practices lead lead me to you know they just it just opens doors mostly and I get more excited about the art making part of it than really yeah, understanding it deeply but uh, mostly they're trying to make babies is my understanding and they are hearing more in a a one-to-one relationship because they're they're also they're in the middle of a choir and you know how that that situation is very different from being on the outside of a choir and hearing it but they're mostly trying to find that other individual in the choir to be able to have babies with is my understanding from I mean it's I think it's very different that that was from Katie did sonification papers that I was reading and I don't know how different it is between crickets I thought I was reading that it's similar this is very I'm totally have not looked into this in any deep scientific way but and they probably hear different frequencies and stuff like, I'm sure their brains work yes. different. It's so hard to know. Yeah. It's funny that this came up because I was just talking to Kamala Shankaram, who we're going to have an episode with her as well. And she recently did, a, well, in 2021, she made a piece about the lifetime of a tree. And she talked to some scientists about trees and found out that trees can actually hear so she made this piece kind of thinking a little bit about what do trees listen for and 
Yeah. What if a tree listened to an opera? What would it be like listening for? I don't know. It's a fun um, thought exercise. I guess coming up with artistic works based on scientific research is in general pretty exciting to me, but I don't engage with it in a way that I would if I was writing a research paper, typically. I use it as opening avenues and engage with it in a fairly abstract way, which is super irresponsible if you're going to do science or really say anything about it, but really illuminating and really important, I think, if you're an artist who's trying to do stuff based on nature and by extension, like the nature of humanity and all and all that stuff to kind of dip into good scientific research that's being done and taking out of it very broad concepts about potential points of connection, I guess. And there are field recordings in this piece, right? Uh, there aren't in this piece. So I've done one other piece with this instrument that is based on field recording. So it's directly related to insect sonification. And the idea with this piece is to keep it in the instrumental world and do the sort of uh, control of this instrument, but not so directly need it to be related to insect sonifications. And actually, I wanted those impulses to be more linked to and more controlled by even literally controlled by in some situations in this piece by instrumental performance. So it's taken out of the insect natural world in this piece. I guess I was imagining the ensemble more as just standing in to replace replace insects. Not that they're trying to sound like them. Instruments in the piece are playing their instruments in pretty human ways, mostly. Um, but still that translation into sending the sound of instruments around the ensemble and putting the sounds of one performer into another performer's mouth. It was the main thing I wanted to try to do and work with more in this piece. So it's another level abstracted from the like original impulse of wanting to make a connection with insect sonification. Full disclosure, we've done like a workshop with you months ago, but we haven't actually rehearsed the new score that you sent us yet. So I'm so psyched to like actually hear what the results are now. <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited. Yeah, I'm revising it right uh, still. It's still stuff <laughs> to, to uh, share with you all. Living documents, baby. We love them. Yeah. I know you were saying that you want to put the sounds of the other performers into another performer's mouth. And I think that that's really beautiful and, you know, speaks, of course, to the intimacy that you mentioned. Is there any type of like utopic or ethical slash aspirational underpinnings to how you've approached the thought world of this piece or is it more purely based in the sound experiment that's happening? I think the main idea is to try to do something with the ways to break down our physical, <laughs> the natures of our physical bodies, even maybe a little bit more, uh, especially like through the medium of sound, which you're all living in all the time and, and very attuned to, to make that connection through our bodies even a little bit deeper, but also to make a connection through the, uh, through the world of technology. So also to, to make more the computer, and if it's a, going to be a piece that involves computers and involves digital sonification, and which kind of works on a really different time frame, and it has a way of interacting the world quite differently than acoustic instruments do, is there a way to involve that in the human body even more? So it's a way of making, yeah, really tying it together 
as one one organism, at least in times in, in the piece. I mean, there are moments where you're all very much individuals, then there are mo moments where you're supposed to be pulled together into a single organism. You the and the technical world and each of you as individuals being a little being mixed up sonically. I really like this because there's there's a lot of of course like music that we play as talk where we find these kind of like really uncanny blends or we become like um this kind of like ever splintering hyper instrument which is so exciting but this is kind of like a level beyond that where we're we're not becoming a hyper instrument but kind of yeah like you said like a hyper organism and it's cool to think of like what is it when we just transcend past the the instrument and like the conglomerate instrument but we become like a, a fused body and a fused body with the technological aspects at play. I think it'd be interesting to talk about some of the other pieces you've written for these sort of like cyborgish instruments. Yeah. Laura and Marina and I played in your piece one to one to one to one with mm. Ensemble Pomplamoose in 2021. Where it's so good. It's so <laughs> good. It was so much fun. And that was like kind of similar. We had these recorder things, um, recorder instruments that were Laura and Marina didn't get to play them, but I got to play them. <laughs> I played, uh, you know, played yeah, Laura was the soloist. But um, yeah, do you want to talk a little bit yeah. about that piece or about other pieces that you've done that use instruments kind of in the same family? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because I, so I'm doing a lot of instrument design, and but they're always with this same guise of what what can it add that's new to the world of a computer generated sound or computer modified controlled sound, but also what could it do to live performance practice, especially with people who've been trained at, on a specific instrument for a long time. And yeah, how can it change the, the way that uh, music can happen on, on stage, especially in live settings. So yeah, that last piece, uh, one to one to one to one, Part of the ensemble is a, a group of four recorders, and those recorders can't play anything until Laura plays sounds for almost the entire piece. So they are directly controlled by the sounds that Laura makes and making a lot of percussive sounds uh, with blue, but they extend into other sorts of playing techniques. but. Whenever you make a percussive sound, the recorders are able to respond and often do respond. The nature of that connection is always changing, but the idea there is that there's a there's a control mechanism, and basically, Laura's flute gets extended into being flute plus an organ of of recorder instruments. I I never stick to those ideas like fundamentally throughout a piece but that that was like the germ of the idea and it starts there and hopefully that becomes an important part of the piece but it always expands and stretches out and doesn't have to have that like very strict connection for me throughout the course of a piece I should say yeah that piece was members of talk and members of ensemble pomplamoose there are also players in that piece that don't have that direct acoustic relationship either being controlled by Laura or by having their performance technique being controlling the recorders at all. Uh, there's another composition that Madison and I have played together or instrument design that we've played together 
uh, that's kind of the opposite of that where the it's two clarinets or kind of Frankenstein-y clarinets where the fingers are controlled by the computer. So the pitches are controlled by the computer, but we have total control over when to play or how loud to play or different uses of our embouchure. So we how are connected. How does the computer control the fingers? There's a bunch of uh, solenoids on the fingers that move the keys up and down for us. So actually we have control over some of the keys, but the computer has control over other parts of the keys. So it's a duet. A duo, I guess, is what it is. It's not a duet, it's a duo. And the computer is controlling speeds of which the fingers play and which fingers are pressed down at any time. And that is our connective voice that holds us together. So no matter when we play, we will be playing very similar finger patterns or the fingerings will be changing at the same time at least. So that's the connectivity in that piece. So kind of the opposite of the the piece with the recorders where the rhythms are being controlled by other people here, the fingering is being controlled and we have control of the rhythms. So it's, I'm always trying to come up with instruments that are doing hybridizations um, of that type and seeing how the nature of them is different by controlling different musical parameters. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the other instruments that you've made or the explorations that you've gone down on this path, especially ones that that don't involve live performance. I feel like I've seen some some installed Brian creations. Yeah, so there's some things that end up as installations and there are things that end up just as things that are fixed media works. And I, I choose to explore different things there. When there are human performers on stage, it's always related to that dynamic that happens there. When it's a, a fixed media piece, I'm focusing on the autonomy of those instruments. Um, so when it, I think, yeah, a lot of the fixed media pieces, there's, there are no humans involved in the performance of them. Uh, let's say, for example, I have a piece for a mechanically controlled flute. And the piece is called Percussion Plus Guitar, I think, or is it Guitar Plus Percussion? Percussion Plus Guitar, Guitar Plus Percussion. Um, but it's there are no guitars or percussions in that piece, but I'm exploring a, a traditional sea flute. Uh, but I guess what I've discovered through playing with it is how unfluty it could sound, I guess, and trying to take the idea of the flute out of the equation, although it still definitely sounds like flute, but the title is there to suggest that it might be um, something other than a flute. And what I end up exploring in that piece is... For me, it's like thinking about virtuosity as being this thing is about precision and speed and control. And weirdly, that's what computers, that's their, that's the easiest thing for them. They're really good at being really fast, really precise, and really controlled. Like that's not virtuosic for a computer. That's the exact, that's the ground zero. It's harder for them to do is all the, the new, it's harder for them to do nuance and expressivity, what we think of ex expressivity, um, changing uh, related to um, other sounds that they're hearing in a in a way that is uh, doing something to help it musically, I guess, from our perspective, from a human perspective, which is um, sometimes fun to just totally take out of the equation and let them play how they want to play. But it's also fun to explore human ideas of musicality and seeing how computers could possibly do that, asking them to do this very weird thing to operate in a in a world that's very much not their own and, you know, 
if you were to think of it, if you were to give it a culture, if you wanted to, how you could say it, yeah, it's very much outside of the culture of how a computer operates and thinks. And uh, that's a that's a friction, and that's a an interesting thing for for me to explore. It's all analogies for me in terms of how we as humans relate to other cultures and what it feels like when we're in an environment that we don't understand. And we can explore that musically, but we can explore that with food. We can explore that with conversation. <laughs> it would be a good idea <laughs> talking to people from other cultures and seeing how differently they see the world and how weird it is for us to experience the world through someone else's eyes. And that's wow. what those pieces are kind of about, I, I think. I mean, that's the thing that makes me want to keep trying them and keep doing them. Yeah, I had never made that connection before, but my experience of performing your pieces is like, there's a kind of like a clumsiness there at first to trying to interact. Tension, yeah. Like, mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's also like if you come with the right attitude of just being like, we're just going to try this out. We're going to figure it out. And I know it's going to be good in the end. Like, it's also really fun to like discover this new way of making music. And it does feel like there's a lot of correlation there between like working with this new machine that you don't understand and like trying to get along with people who you don't really understand yet. Yeah. And it's also interesting because I feel like in the classical tradition which we were trained in it's all about like having control and making things perfect and you also have to let go of that attitude a bit which I find very healthy and kind of a relief <laughs> I can I can imagine it being uh, pretty hard though <laughs> to perform in that way but We'll find ways to do it that makes it comfortable for everybody. Oh, yeah. And by now, I feel like everyone in talk is okay with that. <laughs> like, <laughs> we're used to living in that in that world now, but it's still there's still a little part of me that like wants to hold on to like mm -hmm. control. But it's nice to just be told over and over again in different ways, like embrace the discomfort. Yeah. Embrace the discomfort. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Have fun with it. Yeah. We made the computer uncomfortable by trying to make it, you know, have like cute little human nuances and might as well meet it halfway. Yeah. But yeah. And I do that. I would want to do that for talk because I, that's just where you're engaging with music in general. You're not playing things that are absolute and sure and that you can be very confident exactly how it's going to work and how you're going to do with it. I mean, you're always doing things that you, that you're taking big risks um, up on stage. You know, just trying to figure out how it can work and what the yes. musicality is there. That's yeah. the best. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the best. And I'm so glad that we're embarking on this journey together. I'm so excited. <laughs> I just can't wait. Yeah. And conversely, like I've been lately, I've been trying to understand more the scene in New York of multimedia art, which are, is very computer heavy. But I find in a lot of those performances where people are asking the computer to do like exactly what it was designed to do, like make beautiful projections and stuff, there is kind of like a, a disembodiedness to it. And in a way, kind of like a coldness to it when you when it's just like a computer doing what it, it does, like not all of it, obviously, but but mm -hmm. I really like that in your work, it's. I almost feel empathy. Um, I was watching the video for Translationer, which is a installation you did in 2018. 
and there's no humans like involved but it feels so human and it feels like so emotional because you've incorporated all of these like imperfect elements which are collaborating with each other and there is a computer kind of at the center controlling it but there are all these like slightly unpredictable elements as well that just bring like such a warmth to it that's really cool yeah that piece maybe i'll just describe that piece a little bit so that's like a gallery installation piece and it was in a very big open space and so just wanted to do something to deal with that scale and i came up with an idea of doing something one part one element of it takes up the entire space and one element of it is the smallest thing I could think of to do anything with. So the large element is a string that spans the entire space and it spins around. And then there's a a paper mache megaphone that interacts with the string and picks up vibrations of the string. And then that sound, there's a microphone in the megaphone that translates it to the movement of a motor. So when that's when there's some sound in that megaphone, the motor can move a little bit more and eventually the motor will hit a bell. Eventually, it gets down to an LED, just one small LED that illuminates in the center of the space. And that's the translation of that thing from a really large dealing with the vastness of that space down to the smallest element. But it is all that. It's like through the world that we're perceiving, there's that computer involved that does a lot of the translation. But it's all in within the it gets back into the sound realm. So it goes into the computer realm and then it's back into the sound realm that we understand um, that we can see why the sound is happening and we can we can hear the sound the way the way that we hear sound very different than a computer does. And that's the translation, I guess, going back and forth, which is basically what you it's what you said, Charlotte. I was just kind of explaining. Oh, thank you. That's that a very good. Everyone knows what we're yeah. talking about. Yeah, yeah no, it's lovely to, to hear you describe it and to be able to, like, imagine it in this space. And But the, those are the same similar concepts i guess um the performers there are kind of all robotic is the is the difference and so when i approached the piece like one 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 with the uh with where laura's controlling the flute ensemble that's put into a stitch situation that's supposed to be on stage although it was during covid so it wasn't really on stage but what it's going to be like on stage with classically trained performers is a very a different kind of construct for me but kind of exactly the same actually when you make a piece for robotic performers like um translationer do you imagine or feel at all that those robotic performers have personalities or any kind of force or agency yeah i mean i can get as carried away with that as i like and some of it's imaginary but some of it's some of, so the the thing where I, that i think it's it's real is my relationship to them is kind of what I was explaining before, where I might start a project to write want to make something for a specific purpose. But first of all, I'm probably going to fail that because I can't get the mechanism right, or I, I'll fail technically in some way. But also the thing might just suggest something that's more exciting and more musically there. And it's, not doing it as the same way as a living thing would do it, but it's still a a concept that I try to keep alive in the world in terms of my interactions with human beings, but also interactions when I'm doing art with trying to do art in the mechanical world, just trying to approach them with the same 
the same concept of being open to what they suggest and what uh, how I can learn from them, basically. In that in that way, that's a kind of agency, even though the thing is really not living. And I I do draw some lines between things that are not living and things that are living. So I like how much you've talked about things being like imaginative analogies. And I wonder if you could tell us about if you feel comfortable. Do you feel like there are other aspects of your life in which you find or practice like honing your imagination and, and outside of a music land? I try to make it everything. I mean, you definitely, I feel like in parenting, I definitely have to do that all the time. There are my normal responses to any situation in parenting, but then I have to often run interference on myself to be like, oh no, there's an opportunity here to do something better than what I think that how the situation could go down. In teaching, that's all the always the situation where they're presenting a topic and you're like, no, that's that's bullshit. You can't do that. You can't approach it that way. I mean like, oh, well, maybe there's an angle, maybe there's a way that this is a a a good thing to do, a better thing to do. And it's like that weird confidence, a, a weird thing where you have to have like a balance between like a confidence in order to pursue something and do something, but you have to know that your convictions are are flawed probably in your, even if they're good natured, even if they're for the right reasons, you might be missing an opportunity that can expand your understanding of the world. I think that's the same thing. And I think that's the thing I try to, I feel like I'm I'm running checks on my specific plans all the time, whether I'm making art or I'm doing other anything else in life. And it, I think that's usually a thing I think is a good thing to try to do. Try to run checks on yourself and make sure that you're making decisions in a in a way that's responsive to your current environment and maybe a better choice for a current environment that's different from how you, you know, your your vision of the world <laughs> that was based on all the other things that you experienced in life. And that it might be good decisions, uh, but might also be need some modification. So you're imperfect. <laughs> We're all imperfect, but probably have a pretty good place of starting, I guess, thinking about things. I don't know. I love hearing you say that because I feel like from knowing you as a friend, I mean, as an artist as well, but as a friend, I feel like that's just so evident in how you like interact with everybody and everything. And so I just wanted to hear you say that or articulate that for those who might not know you as, as closely because you are in fact the best. Well, that's a very uncomfortable thing to true. hear. It's and just all true. That... Sorry. Yeah. Enjoy the discomfort, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that uh, nobody can see my face right now. The cringy and the redness. Emerging. Well, Charlotte, I can see it and we, we can describe it <laughs> for listeners if, if you desire. Well, could I ask quickly? I'm really curious. Let's go back to younger Brian. What did you get into first? music composition or music instrument building or what's the relationship between those two things for you and can you pinpoint like a germ of where it all started uh, instrument building and playing around with electricity I think definitely started first what were some of your first projects or experiments 
let's see, I had a time where, um, well, even before I was trying to play an instrument, um, I was always trying to solve like problems like around the house. I'm like, oh, I'm going to invent something with electricity. Uh, I had this <laughs> pop dispenser, which is what pop that's in Ohio. That's soda. And yeah, pop... we call it that in, uh, in Ontario too. We call it pop. Oh, you do? Oh, I didn't know. That. Okay. Um, so you put like, because everybody used to drink a lot of pop and now people don't drink. Now it would be a carbonated water dispenser anyway like a little thing and I would build like a little wooden contraption you pull out this carbonated water and then another one comes down and replaces it that's a thing that uh, people would have but then I'm like oh but what we need to know is if it's empty because that's the most important thing in my life right now is is there any more pop available that I can have and so there should be an electronic device that sends off an alarm when it's empty because that's an important thing and so I remember trying to like hack stuff like that together all the time. I don't know. I was always looking for things to take apart. And I guess my dad had a lot of, has experience with that stuff and was kind of a, a tinker. He's a mechanic. So he was always taking things apart too. And I found that interesting. So that happened before I was interested in music. Then when I started playing guitar in high school and then I've, I, wanted to start building guitar effect pedals and stuff like that. But I didn't find a way to work it into my compositional practice until I was like at the end of my PhD is when I started. I don't have a PhD, <laughs> my DMA, um, which is is when I started uh, trying to build instruments and play with electricity more. And that was kind of a response to just feeling like I didn't have a lot of room to maneuver in within the computer realm. I was always interested in using electronics in some way. And usually that meant using a computer and build computer, make code and have sound come out of speakers. But I felt like I didn't have a lot of room to maneuver very much in that realm anymore. And I had a detached, there was a bit of detachment from what was happening in all of the more complex procedures that I was undergoing using commercial software that I was not a part of developing and commercial plugins and those offer a lot of musical possibilities, but I kind of wanted something that I could understand more on a, on a simpler level. And so I started building, working more with electricity to, to try to do that. It's That's cool really hearing cool. how like such an integral part of your practice now is something you didn't really find your way to until re like relatively later in your sort of developmental process. That's awesome. I yeah. also love hearing about what like an early relationship you had to these kind of things. Kids think of the coolest shit always. And it's so exciting that like you can continue that train of imaginative childlike thought, not saying childish, but childlike, which is so important. Are there any other things that you remember from when you were like tinkering around as a kid that were like stand up memories, like the pop dispenser, which I'm so into? I had one also with a mailbox where you like the problem in our household right now is that we don't know if the mailman has come yet or not. So what I have to do <laughs> is figure out this a way. Problem. To rig That's up the problem. The yeah, <laughs> what I have to do is figure out a way to rig up the mailbox so that a trigger will go off when the mailman opens the thing and that I'll know and the light will go off in the house and we'll know that the mail is there. It's like this. It was a, yeah, like problem solving kind of doing electricity. Cause at that point I realized you could make a light illuminate by connecting two leads 
of it to a battery. You can make an LED illuminate at least. And that was that was the principle I thought could be super useful in the world. We could somehow make the mailbox do that. And you wouldn't have to spend this time going out to the mailbox and check and see if the mail has come yet. Do you now, are you one of those people who has like your USPS alerts set up? No, no. <laughs> Actually, so the apartment building I'm living in is has all kinds of problems. And one of them is the mailman can't even get into the building. So I don't think I've received mail for months. Oh my gosh. Well, Brian, it's about time that you fix that with some batteries and an LED light. Yeah, I know. That's what I need. There's definitely an Arduino that can be helpful here. There's definitely something. Maybe the maybe the mailman just needs some some more pop. <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about, if you feel comfortable, um, something else that is really cool that you recently made? Speaking of parenting, speaking of Halloween as well. Oh, one of my proudest inventions. Yeah, I was so my son wanted to be R2-D2 for Halloween. And it was difficult enough to figure out how to make like a R2-D2 costume out of cardboard. But we managed that it's team effort with his mother, Natasha, and all of us and paint. But the thing that he really needed in this costume also was a way... And the kids are awesome because, like, this is the first, like, I need an R2-D2 concert, uh, costume, but it also, of course, it has to translate my voice into R2-D2 voice because that's what R2-D2 does. He doesn't talk like me. Like Kids are the best. Okay. I'm like, wait a minute. I'm teaching a class with Arduino right now. I think I can make this happen. And so, yeah, I whipped together an Arduino that has a microphone input and outputs R2-D2 sound at, when he talks. So... That was a very um, fun thing to play with for like Can you 10 minutes. Can take R2-D2 sound for us? Because I, I, I'm not really a Star Wars person, but... Wait, what do you want me to do? What does R2-D2 sound like? Uh, bleeps and bloops. I don't know if I can do it with my mouth. It sounds a lot like the sounds I think I'm going to... Um, Charlotte will be playing sometimes. <laughs> yes! And it's R2-D2. Yeah, that might have been the coolest Halloween costume I've ever seen. I only saw it on social media, but I feel like if you made a, a tutorial, like put it on GitHub or something, you might go really viral. Yeah. <laughs> I did take actually. So the first thing was, are there people who've made R2D2 sounds with an Arduino already? And of course, there are like 500 projects out there already. Like, I think that's uh, probably the first okay. thing anybody ever did with an Arduino with an Arduino because I don't know if you can imagine <laughs> this there's a little bit of overlap be in the between the community that might like Star Wars and the community that might like Arduinos so was your son happy with the costume yeah for 10 minutes and then I was done that's how it, that's how it always goes like <laughs> and then uh, it's like oh it's a little bit restrictive oh it's kind of hot in here Oh, I can't. I don't know what it was exactly. It also started falling apart eventually. But... <laughs> As all good Halloween costumes do, it's like if they haven't fallen apart by the end of the night, you're just contributing to the world's <laughs> trash problem in challenging ways. That's right. Now it's back to being a cardboard box as it always wanted to be. But yeah. now it's a cardboard box that can't be thrown away and it's going to be in the corner of a room for the next three years I think do you have anything else you want to share Brian in general um no I'm looking forward to the to uh the concert but the prep that we get to do before the concert and see what's there looking forward to 
probably throwing some things out, maybe making some things different. It's going to be great. It's going to be so amazing. I'm, yeah. I just cannot wait. So yeah. Well, thanks for chatting for a while, making yeah, me feel kind you. of Seriously. awkward, but uh, you know, we don't talk about these things naturally. Like Brian, we've known each other for so long. I had no idea about the pop dispenser. Uh, yeah. I, yeah, I know. Okay, now I have to start a podcast to have both of you on so I can figure <laughs> out your childhood <laughs> activities. <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye. Bye, Shar. Bye bye. This has been Talk Editions Podcast, episode 38 with Brian Jacobs. To hear more of Brian's work and get details about the world premiere of Organic Synthesis Volume 2, that's on Thursday, December 7th at Me Too 580 in Brooklyn, check out our show notes or go to talkensemble.com. This is the first in a series of episodes about performing artists who engage with and respond to their physical environment. We're releasing this series alongside our year-end fundraiser, so if you like the podcast, if you believe in Talk's mission and you want to support the glorious artistic ecosystem in which we are all enmeshed, please go to talkensemble.com support. The music at the beginning and end of this episode is excerpted from Percussion and Guitar by Brian Jacobs. This episode was produced and edited by Charlotte Mundy. Again, to support this podcast and everything that Talk does, go to talkensemble.com support. We appreciate you so much, and thanks for listening.